Hey, Stranger Rangers, this is Bree. This is Patina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, I kind of hope that you, well, not kind of, I hope that you enjoyed the little would you rather game that we played on the last episode last two episodes episodes. Uh, last two episodes yeah it was kind of fun um we survived the ice storm 2024 that hit portland i'm pretty sure it made like national news you know it happens every year yeah and every year we're not prepared for it i'm talking about like the city the city is not prepared for it um and people get wild and people will do some desperate things did you hear about a guy out in Crasham? so that's another town like 20 minutes from us he was his power had gone out and he'd gone into his car to charge his phone and get warmed up while he was robbed at gunpoint of his car and shot he survived luckily but i think he was shot on his side or something but he was forced out of his car and and i think it was just another person that was desperate to get out of the cold which that's not the way to do it but no i did not hear about that that is crazy yeah i thought you were gonna say that he like sat in his garage and got died of carbon monoxide no no yeah it was it was completely unexpected um and then i don't and then we had a couple what was it a family of three that got electrocuted walking up to their car uh Um, lines had fallen near their car and because the ground is wet it you know the electricity moved up into them and luckily there was a an 18 year old girl who was around and she saved a two-year-old that was in man's arms after he had fallen and was electrocuted oh my gosh i hadn't heard about that I'm pretty sure it happened up the road from where I work because Mm -hmm. one of my customers told me about it and I thought with the way that he was telling me the story that a branch had fallen off of a tree and hit the family but it took down Mm. power lines or power lines were down and they were electrocuted right so the branch broke off tore down the power lines the power lines made contact with the water the wet ground and and that's what unfortunately injured them fatally yeah literally I'm gonna remember that for the rest of my life because obviously that science makes sense and that's not anything that I would have ever even yeah thought about as a danger at first when the story came out I thought that the family was initially inside of the vehicle and a power line had fallen on them or either on their car or around them and they had stepped out onto the wet ground and I was like holy Jesus Christ like that is not what you're supposed to do like I still I feel terrible for the family but don't step out of the car because they're like there's a two-year-old survivor that was um, you know involved in all this I was like oh the two-year-old must have been in the car I made my own conclusions to be honest Um, And I thought they had stepped out of the car and come to find out, no, they were all walking towards the car when this untimely moment of the power line coming down and making contact with the water happened. And so it was kind of inevitable. There there really was nowhere for them to be at um, that was safe. It was just one of those freak accidents that there, there really wouldn't be anywhere for them to run to so if you're in your car and that happens stay in your fucking car sure because the rubber making contact with the road doesn't allow that electricity come up into the car into you right the moment you step out you're absolutely fucked um but if you're ever if that ever happens if a power line is down if you're driving along and a power line is down do not step out of your vehicle because that rubber is keeping you safe. That's yeah. my PSA for today. Yeah, no, I think that is a wealth of knowledge for all of us yeah. to know. Cause yeah, like I said, that thought would yeah. not have even crossed my mind. Yeah. It's That's been a rough so couple of days here in Portland. I mean, 
unfortunately, and this is not true crime related. Um, it's just unfortunate um, time. It, it's, it happens every year, unfortunately, that I know of at least two different uh, people that were found post-mortem mm -hmm. uh, from passing away and just the elements, just the freezing weather. Um, yeah. One of them was a, a car that had gone off the road and as they were trying to tow the car out, they found the person was huddled, frozen, close to the car, just because they were off the embankment trying to keep warm. Oh, so they it's weren't really, in the car? They were no. next to the car? Right. They just happened Jeez. to be where that person crashed into. Yeah. It's just it's just a wild story. So this is why we took some time off. Yeah. <laughs> just because... We wanted to make sure our families were warm and that we had, um, you know, the right, um, you know, food and, and water and, and, you know, gosh, even walking anywhere was a hassle. You can't walk anywhere. It's so slippery and keeping your house warm, my animals warm. It's just, um, my in-laws were without power for four days. And so it, it happens, but we wanted to make sure our heads were in the game trying to keep our families safe so everyone thank you for allowing us to take that time off yeah thank you <laughs> all that very, to be said much. to say that exactly yeah oh man all right well we're gonna go ahead and get right into this episode for today this is a story about the murder of 12 year old justin bloxham oh 12 12 okay just a baby so yeah, yeah he heads up about that um fortunately throughout my research I'll just go ahead and preface that a lot of the coverage through news articles other podcasts and media um spared a lot of the gruesome details uh that kind of went along with this so it's not going to be a highly graphic case thank goodness um you know, out of respect for the surviving family of Justin. And sometimes those details, as we know from your last episode, yeah. is kind of hard to yeah. stomach. So Justin Bloxham was a 12-year-old in the, like the DeSoto Parish area of Louisiana, which I've never been to Louisiana. I'm not super familiar with that part of the South, um, but I believe it to be kind of in the Northern part of the state. Okay. And as far as Justin's upbringing, he was born May 10th of 1997. He was the second of four boys of the family and the family themselves resided in a very small town called Stonewall in Louisiana. And this is one of those towns population of about 2000 people. Mm but definitely like an up and coming area. And I know that we see this a lot in our direct area around Portland. Right. You have all of these small towns that are just blowing up because right. the big cities are getting so populated that it's making all of these smaller towns surrounding much, much more appealing for people right. that are trying to get out of that um, environment. Just, Justin's mom even describes him as being someone who could make the simple task of folding laundry a fun task. Like he just had that really fun, outgoing, free-spirited personality about him. And if you knew him and he knew that you were having a bad day, he was the type of person who would go out of his way to make your day better. Oh. So he was just an angel of a boy. He was a student at North DeSoto Elementary School. So I'm guessing he was probably in like fifth grade or so. Fifth grade, yeah, that sounds at this right. point. And in roughly 2009, as this, you know, era came to be very, very popular, Justin found himself on social media, most specifically MySpace. Um, oh, being yes. 12, yep throwback for those yeah. listening that remember my space. I know Fatina and I uh -huh. <laughs> do fondly. He being 12 years old, obviously had to lie about his age in order to get a MySpace profile. I think, what was it? You had to be at least 14. I think 15 maybe. 
15, maybe. Maybe. So at this time in 2009, Justin was like 10 or 11. So he definitely had to lie about his age to make a profile, which isn't hard to do. You just put in your birthday as whatever the minimum age requirement is. And there's really no other checks or balances for that, which. No, it's an honor system of birthdays. Exactly. Just like if you go to, um, like a brewery's website, you have to certify that you're 21 years or older. Right. And you always are. It always, (laughs) always are. So Justin, obviously being too young to have a MySpace page, um, he had, he hid that from his parents, his dad ended up finding about his social media and the parents were really just like kind of concerned about him being on it. A, it was relatively new. I don't think that his parents had a whole lot of knowledge about social media and everything. Um, I also heard like little bits and pieces that maybe the way that Justin was portraying himself on this profile was much more mature and maybe not like his like true personality. He was maybe kind of taking on this like alter ego older kid, like alter. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And so they're kind of like, Hey, you know, you need to be careful with this, who you're talking to, how you're portraying yourself, because you could definitely give people the wrong impression. Right. I mean, and before this parents, all they knew about online chatting was like a whole chat rooms and yeah, there were scary stories coming out of that. So I can't imagine being a parent and navigating that, that time where you're like, I don't know. I don't, I can't tell you no. Right. I mean, I I can tell you no, but I don't know why I'm telling you no. Exactly. And I don't even know if then you could really set a whole lot of um, parental like barriers, like how you can have your kids Netflix and the adult Netflix. I don't know that those systems were even in place then. Yeah. But along with the social media in that day and age, Justin's mom also said that Justin was very addicted to his cell phone, like on it all the time. And this is what, kind of a snake. Like what are you doing at that age? Well, according to her, and this sounds like a lot, but really it's not. He was sending around like 2000 text messages a month, which back in 2009, you were definitely counting your text messages because it cost a lot after you sent a certain amount, unless you paid for the luxury of having unlimited text messaging. So for all of those that never had a limited cell phone plan, (laughs) I remember paying like, or thinking it would be 25 cents a text if you went over your limit of like, what, 200 texts or something like Mm -hmm. that. Like I had a very small plan. Like I had a brick Nokia phone, like, right. But 25 cents a text, like, you know, it had to be an important text. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was not so just a a normal way of communication like it is nowadays. No, no, no. And when you break down like 2000 texts a month, like that sounds like a lot initially, but it's really only like, what, like 50 ish texts a day. Yeah. Like 60. Yeah. Yeah. 50 to 60. So Still a I lot. mean, even for me now, I'm like, God, I can barely text someone back. <laughs> Seriously. I know you and I are both, um, not super great we about have that. this language so that it could be hours and we could just pick up where we left off it's not 100 percent. yeah it's not like it has to be immediate we know it's not on purpose for sure <laughs> that's funny though 60 texts a day is blowing my mind i know Even, i know it doesn't sound like a lot and it's probably not a lot but for me and i'm like no god no unless i really get into like a deep back and forth conversation with somebody sure. I'm definitely not texting that much a day but yeah. being a 10 or 11 year old in 2009 with this new fun technology yeah. like yeah you're you're excited about it yeah I could see that so with all that being said I'm really just kind of painting this picture for you guys of of the kid that Justin was 
Um, on March 29th, 2010, Justin made plans to go spend the night with his friend, Dustin. And according to Dustin, they had a pretty normal night, but that Justin had been on his phone all night texting Mm. someone or some people. And around 11 PM, Justin received a text message from an unknown number. And the person on the other line said that their name was Amber and that she was 14 years old. So a little bit older than Justin at that age, but not by much. They started texting back and forth and the conversation turned sexual very, very quickly. And Justin started receiving very sexually graphic pictures. The messages themselves got very explicit. And at one point from cell phone records that, you know, were obtained at some point, you could tell that it started to make Justin uncomfortable because he sent a text message back saying, you know, like I'm only 12 years old sort of thing. So he definitely had this moral compass to know that the conversation that was being had was not the most appropriate. Although at 12, you're also equally intrigued, right? Yeah, I could see that. So throughout their conversation, Amber was trying to meet up with him and Justin entertained the idea for a little bit. Now he didn't know who this Amber was. And I'm going to say that in quotations, but after some more texting back and forth throughout the night, Amber convinced Justin to meet up with her. And she told him that there was going to be a taxi that would be arriving at Dustin's house. It was going to be a bright green taxi and would be driven by a guy named Chad. And so, no. So Justin, in his curious state, agrees, and he goes and waits outside in the early hours of the morning for the cab, and it shows up, and Justin gets in and leaves. And this would be the last time that anyone knew or saw Justin alive. Oh, no. Now, the last text that Justin sent to Amber quotations was at 3 13 AM. And it said cab died. So Justin is in this cab thinking that he's on his way to go meet up with this Amber and the cab that he's in died. Um, we now know that Justin was not texting a girl named Amber. Instead, it was 34 year old Brian Horn. And I'm going to try to use Brian as much as possible with throughout my notes. I do use his last name, but I'm going to try to stay as true to Brian as I can. Um, Brian was also quote unquote, Chad, the cab driver. Oh no. Yeah. So Brian was a known sex offender. His previous known convictions involved touching and raping young girls. And after Brian had served some jail time, he ended up landing a job as a cab driver with the company named Action Taxi. So the following morning, when Dustin, Justin's friend, woke up and didn't see Justin in his house, he assumed that he had just woken up before him and went home. So Dustin walked down to Justin's house to return his backpack that he had left behind. And when he got to the house, he ended up talking to Justin's brother who said that Justin never came home that night. And so at this point they realized, obviously something's wrong. Where is Justin? Um, Justin's mom was notified as well as the police and then some other friends and family to try to see if maybe he ended up with another friend or family member. Now, once the word got out about Justin missing, a neighbor ended up coming forward and reporting that he had seen a green action taxi cab early in the morning. And this was their first big clue. Good for you, neighbor. Thank you. Yeah. So given that information and the fact that Dustin was able to walk down to Justin's house to return his backpack, it it seems pretty obvious that they lived at least in the same neighborhood. Right. So once they put out this information, it ended up ringing a bell with another police officer by the name of Keith Banta. 
And Officer Banta recalled seeing this exact taxi on the side of the road around 8 a.m. that morning on his way to work. And he recalls as he drove past this taxi um, that the driver was still with the car and was acting kind of frantic, like sitting in the driver's seat, like kind of shaking the steering wheel, you know, like you broke down and you're frustrated or something like that. But it was it was enough of a rememorable sight that he yeah and it's a bright green car like you, you see know? him you're like what the fuck i see is he okay like exactly like that yeah okay now the officer said that his gut told him to stop but because he was already late for work that morning he just kept driving Ugh. and keith returned later that day to where he had seen the car but it was no longer there but the terrain around the area looked tampered with like there was some tall grass off the side of the road kind of that you know it was flattened out looked like someone had been walking around back in there sadly enough several hours after being reported missing in a wooded field off of us highway 171 and red bluff road the lifeless body of 12 year old justin was discovered face down in a shallow slough of water and after a coroner's report it was very obvious that his cause of death was asphyxiation oh damn right away too they found him Mm-hmm. luckily you know, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was in a pretty rural area. So it's really lucky that somebody saw yeah. that taxi there and they kind of really knew right where to start looking. Point. Yeah, exactly. So in the, in the days leading up to Justin's murder, Brian Horn had borrowed a cell phone from another 12 year old girl by the name of Lauren Lindsay. Lauren was a friend of Brian's stepdaughter. And he told her that he wanted to use the cell phone to download some of the ringtones off of her phone to his phone. Now, for those of you that didn't have to do this at this day and age, you used to be able to download ringtones. I know a lot of us have our cell phones on silent nowadays, so some of you might not know what a ringtone is, but you could take the SIM card out of somebody's phone and put it into yours and download those ringtones on. It was a really, really fun, fun, revolutionary time. (laughs) It was a revolutionary time. Most definitely. Now, What Lindsay, or sorry, what Lauren didn't know is that Brian was downloading all of her contacts from her phone into his phone. Oh. And not taking ringtones. I mean, maybe he he did take some ringtones, but that was not his true intention. Lauren was friends with Justin and she had his number saved in her phone. And to this day, it's still not really known how or why Brian targeted Justin. He could have just been bored. one bored. Maybe he was texting a bunch of contacts and Justin just happened to be one of the few that reciprocated. Um, so we still don't really know how that all came to to play out but what we do know is brian was the one texting justin that night and he was eventually able to lure him in now investigators believe that once the cab broke down justin sent that text about the cab dying which we know went through and correct me if i'm wrong about this technology but we know that he sent the text about the cab dying and that it went through because they were able to receive it from cell phone records. It had to have been. Yeah. So at this point, they believe that Brian then turned the cell phone off because that text had went through. And they also believe that Justin had probably figured out that Brian was the one texting him pretending to be this Amber and most likely made an attempt to escape. Probably. 
And at approximately 6.30 a.m. the next morning on March 30th, an officer stopped to check in on a car parked on the side of the highway. And this was Brian in that green action taxi. Now, when the officer got out, he found Brian at the cab who told the officer that he was fine. He had just ran out of gas and someone was on the way to help him, which is a pretty, you know, relatively believable story, at least one that would pass and get a police officer to stop asking questions. It's like, Hey, you're not just some random dude driving some random car. You obviously work for a taxi company. I'm sure you've either called your AAA or called the taxi company. Right. And someone is coming out to help you. So the officer believed his story and went on his way. But what he didn't know at the time was that Justin's body laid just a short distance. So Brian had been staying with his brother, Kevin, at the time, and given the evidence that they had of Brian's history of sexual assault. So sorry, let me rewind just a little bit. They had the neighbor that was able to pinpoint the taxi, right? Right. And the, and the name of it. So somewhere along the line, they went to Action Taxi, probably got a list of everyone who drives for them, gotcha. went through all of their histories, and I'm sure they landed on Brian Horn's name and saw that he was a registered sex offender and that he had gotcha. this history. Okay. So given all of that, he seemed like the most likely suspect. They were able to track Brian down. He was staying with his brother, Kevin, at the time, and they reached out and were able to make contact with Kevin. And they were like, hey, we need to talk to your brother. This is what's going on. And so Kevin goes into his house and Brian is sleeping at the time. And he's like, hey, man, you need to wake up. I got the police on the phone. They're saying this. You have a history of this. What the fuck did you do? Right. And so they drove down to the police station in the action taxi cab and Brian turned himself in. His brother was able to convince him to turn himself into the police. Oh shit. I was not expecting that. I was not either. It didn't take a whole lot of convincing to get him to do this. Wow. Now, some of the best evidence that they had on him was the taxi that he had been driving, which as soon as he showed up to the police station, He turned himself in. He was immediately arrested. They took in that taxi for evidence. And they were able to recover Justin's fingerprints. And from what I understood, a SIM card that was left behind in the car that belonged to Justin's cell phone. So two pretty damning pieces of evidence to find left behind. And... So Brian is now in custody and we're going to fast forward about four years to 2014 for Brian's trial. And this happened on April 5th, 2014. This would be just four days after the fourth anniversary of Jessen's death. Now, Brian's defense attorney, J. Antonio Florence, worked the innocence angle (laughs) as best as he could. I know I've said this before. I do not admire defense attorneys at all. I think that they have one of the toughest jobs, A, to try to prove their client's innocence, if they are indeed innocent. Right. And they just also give me the icks that they are the ones trying to get people off for just like the worst shit, you know? But they are, they are in a way master manipulators to be able to look at evidence and stuff like that and to paint somebody that shouldn't be right as innocent. Now, Florence started his opening statements by asking the jury to not be overtaken by emotion as they heard this evidence, which is nearly impossible. Yeah. He started his opening statement by saying, I have been struggling with how to start this. And I'm sure you were Antonio Florence. He admits to Horn being a sex offender, but he quote, doesn't rape boys. He only has a history of raping little girls. So he couldn't possibly have been interested in committing this crime. 
Florence tried to hone in on the assumption that he was only labeled a sex offender in relation to females. And he also said that Horn was a swinger who liked watching his wife and girlfriend have sex with other men. So, quote, those text messages were designed for that, to watch this virgin have sex with his women. Oh. And that was the motivation for Brian making contact with Justin that night. Not that Brian what? wanted anything to do with him, but that he wanted to bring him back to his place to watch his wife or his girlfriend or whoever have sex with Justin. Who the fuck cares why he drug him out of the house with lies, pretending to be another person? Who the fuck cares why? Exactly. The You're fact still is the that one that did. did. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Now, Florence continues with stating that teenagers want to have sex with adults and that Horn was thinking, quote, he's going to have some fun. I'm going to have some fun. This is going to be a good night for Justin. This is going to be a good night for me. This defense attorney just like makes me want to throw up. Now, the fact he- that he has the balls to say that to a group of adults and be like Mm -hmm. oh no kids do this all the time yeah come on guys don't you remember when you were 12 and you wanted to have sex with a 30 something year old woman like no i'm sure that that thought very rarely crosses any teenager's mind wow yeah wow wow is about the best i could say right now (laughs) it's like wow exactly that's that's your defense that's what you're going with okay mm-hmm. so he pleads for his clients in a sense that horn's intention was never to kill justin and florence said that the prosecution had no dna evidence to prove that horn had touched justin but conveniently he allows room for the explanation that horn put a hand over justin's mouth so you may or may not find dna around Justin's mouth that matches up with my client. And he also states that perhaps at this point, um, Brian would have been covering Justin's mouth to tell him to be patient. I will take you to the girl. Gross. I know it's just all so disgusting. Now there was some DNA evidence that was presented in court and the dna that the prosecution had was evidence of semen around justin's anus but that the semen belonged to justin and given the fact that justin's body had been laying in water for several hours there was really no conclusive way to link any dna from horn to justin in this scenario so whether the semen belonged to Justin or it belonged to Brian is debatable. How it got in that particular area is debatable. And it just kind of reminded me of the, um, I don't know, I guess it kind of took my, my uh, memory back to the whole Casey Anthony case. Mm -hmm. I know that her daughter was left laying in that water for far longer than Justin, but it's like, it's so hard to prove something once a body and DNA has been so cross-contaminated with other elements. Yeah. 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 It's hard with the water. I mean, (laughs) semen is not like saying touch DNA or spit or you know something that's discarded so flippantly like it's not Mm -hmm. it's not it takes time to produce it I guess is the nicest way I can say it yeah so it doesn't disappear out of nowhere it's just like oh I just yeah of course I can explain how it got there no the fuck you can't right right and so given this I think that they were able to conclude I think you know from what I said that it was Justin's DNA that was the the semen specimen but then it's like how did it get there why was it there did a sexual assault go down oh so it was Justin's yeah it was it was Justin's semen found around his anus from what I found and understood and that 
the defense had said that you would potentially find my client's DNA around his mouth from him having covered his mouth with his hand. So I think it's safe to say that at some point there was some sexual assault that happened. I mean, something had to have gone down. Yeah. Now, even though Brian had turned himself in, he still wanted to enter a plea of not guilty, but his attorney went against his wishes, stating to the jury, we know Brian Horn killed Justin Bloxham. I'm not asking you to let him walk the streets. I'm asking you to find him not guilty. And this was him asking for them to not find him guilty of first degree murder, but rather second degree murder, or even a charge of manslaughter, because those two charges carried a significantly lesser sentence. But you still like said, we know that I know that my client is guilty. I know that he did this. He did this. And also I think it's worth noting to point out that, um, that sounds to me like a complete breach of client attorney privilege. <laughs> if Brian had at one point admitted to his attorney, yeah, I did do this. Um, well, he admitted to the cops, right? Yeah, he, he admitted so to the cops. So then it's public. So then That's it's not, true. Because they would, the cops would have brought up tapes or recordings or people saying, he, he told us he did. Sure how he did it if he did it is maybe the the privilege there that's true that's true yeah no that that totally makes sense yeah as i was hearing that i was like dang dude you kind of um just go against his wishes yeah yeah exactly which part of that does come into play later he wants either second degree or manslaughter but not first degree i wonder what the requirements are is it like premeditation I think pretty universally across the board, first degree murder is classified as premeditated right. murder. Hmm. Um, so that would be, that would be my assumption. I think um, probably in the state of Louisiana, that's. So he's saying exactly his at. defense is it's not premeditated. He did not mean to drag this kid out of the sleepover with an intent to kill him. He never thought of killing him. He was taking him over for his girlfriend and wife. Mm-hmm. That was his intent of, quote unquote, taking him out that night. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. something happened, escalated, that he wound up dead. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, um, Brian, at this point, was looking at death row with the guilty verdict of first of a first degree murder charge. Right. And despite the best attempts from his attorney, Brian was ultimately found guilty of first degree murder and he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Wow. So Brian sat on death row for some time and we're going to fast forward a little bit to September of 2018. And while Brian sat on death row, a bunch of legal shit was going down in Louisiana that ended up tremendously temporarily benefiting Brian. The Louisiana Supreme Court came back and they overturned Brian's original murder conviction. And this was largely impacted from another case that had happened in the state. It was McCoy versus Louisiana, where McCoy said that he was innocent, but his attorneys presented him as guilty against his wishes. And this shared many similarities with Brian and his defense. Um, Brian originally wanted to plead not guilty and claimed his innocence based on the grounds that he had a similar dispute with his original attorney in his first trial. And so his original um, conviction was overturned and Horn was awarded a new trial in conjunction with these similarities. Wow. Now in 2019, so that was September, 2018, a short while later in 2019, Brian was indicted by a, a grand jury on the same charges. And then after this COVID hit and put a huge delay on many trials wow. from seeing their scheduled day in court, as we know, with right. a bunch of cases that we've kind of covered around that time frame. So Brian was indicted, like I said, and 
I believe sat in jail during that whole time. Now from 2018, when his charge was overturned to when he was reindicted in 2019, I'm not sure where he was at that point in time. I don't know if he was let was free he to go, if he was... I don't imagine he would have even been on house arrest. I don't know kind of how all that played out oh, in that short weird. little time frame. Yeah. So on July 4th of 2023, just last year, Brian got his new day in court. And depending on the source that you look into, after about 20, after about a 20 or a 45 minute deliberation, the jury came back with a second guilty verdict of first degree murder, oh, wow. holding up the original death penalty from 2014. Wow. Now, a question that came up for me, which I'll try my best to explain my way through this as I was looking at this and I was like, okay, could double jeopardy have come into play with this case? But the answer to that, from what I understand, is no. If Brian had been acquitted on the first charge, they couldn't have come back after him again. Right. But because his original conviction was overturned based off of his representation, that's not to say that if more evidence comes around or if the state feels like they have still have a strong enough case against this person, that's that's not to say that they can't be re-indicted right. for the same case, same charges, right. same everything. So that's my understanding. If that question kind of popped up any of in any of our listeners' minds about that, that's the best way that I can explain how he was able to be retried on the same charges for the same case. Right. Again. And what makes me think that he probably was walking around free during that entire time of 2018 to 2023 um or 19 whatever to 2023 yeah was that they, they probably said scratch all that happened it's like you never were indicted it's like you were never convicted and so therefore he might have gone free for that entire time until they re-indicted him mm -hmm. and reconvicted him for the charges so that's why it's like the first indictment, first conviction never happened. So there's no first part to the double jeopardy. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So that's why I'm thinking he probably walked free that entire time in between. Yeah, I could see that. And I am not entirely sure that it was from 2019 to 2023. I think there was that short period of time in 2018 when his charges were overturned and then when he was re-indicted. And from my understanding, that oh, indictment put him put back, back on death row and then COVID happened and shit got drug out yeah. for a really, really, really long time. Wow. Okay, let me find my place back here in my notes. So they up, upheld his original death sentence from his first conviction in 2014. Yeah. Brian's sentencing took place the following day. So that would have been July 5th of 2023 in a full courtroom that included Justin's family and friends. And Brian was originally given a date of September 14th, 2023 for his execution Whoa. to be carried out. However, from a recent article that I found from January 11th of this year, Brian still sits on death row. Wow. He has not yet, you know, his death been sentence executed. has not been, been yeah. carried out yet. And so most recently, which is what this article covered, Brian's attorney attempted another appeal, which I was surprised that he was even given the opportunity to present that, but it was denied by Judge Amy Burford McCartney. And in the aftermath of Justin's murder, this is, you know, you have to try to find a silver lining in, in, in as many fucked up situations as you can, yeah. right? Um, Justin's mom has advocated and become a spokesperson to prevent situations like this from happening mm. to other kids. And a big part of that, which I wholeheartedly agree with herself, along with several, several other Louisiana legislators were able to pass a law that prevented sex offenders from attaining jobs like taxi drivers, limo drivers, yeah. carnival operators, et cetera. Any of those jobs where you could 
potentially come into contact with kids or be alone in a vehicle or something with someone who's a minor or whatever. So she really went forward and fought hard to get a law like that. Honestly, that was one of my first thoughts when you said, you know, he was a a sex, uh, a sex offender and then he got a job as a cab rider. And I was like, that's weird. Cause I remember back in the day, like some parents and even to this day now, parents would, you know, throw their kids in the taxi if they couldn't get them to school on time Yeah, and, and get, try and get them to school or tell them to take one home from, from school or whatnot. Mm-hmm. That was my first thought. And I was like, oh no, that's not, that's not probably something they thought about at the cab company. Right. But I can see how now that would probably be an issue because there could be contact with a minor and otherwise there'd be no regulation on it. Exactly. Yeah. And I love that this law had a ripple effect because it was also passed in, in states and counties surrounding Louisiana. So it didn't just apply to their state or their town or county or whatever. It, it really, really, um, had a ripple effect and it should have, you know, um, you know, taxi drivers are essentially like subcontractors, you know, they, they work for the company, but they're not employed by the company. Uh, There's this weird gray area. And so, um, the year of when this law was passed, I'm not a hundred percent sure on, but I really hope that this situation or unfortunately other situations like this makes companies like that have, um, much more accountability in their checks and balances when they are bringing these people on to operate under their name. Well, I think now more than ever too, with Uber and Lyft having a lot more, I mean, even recently brought up like sexual advances by or sexual assaults by their drivers to passengers um, are probably hopefully taking more into that into consideration. I mean, there's only so mm-hmm. much they can do, right? Especially if someone doesn't have like a, an actual past that they can look into. But right, um, if someone does have a past, if someone's a, a registered sex offender, then they should absolutely don't want them in touch with the public. No. Especially with some of the vulnerable public, like drunken people at night or you know what i mean because that's who's calling a cab that's totally. who's calling an uber absolutely yeah hmm. hope they are uh, <laughs> so what also ended up happening after this you know bless justin's mother um the company action taxi no longer exists they took on a new name after a legal battle with the bloxham family mm. and I can't blame them. I wouldn't want that brand out there driving taxis as the owner of the company. I'd be like, nope, we're going to completely change the name. I want no association with this. I don't want to lose business because people are afraid to get in, you know, my taxis and whatnot. And the specific cab that Brian had used that night was bought from a private buyer and it was given to the Bloxham family so that it could be destroyed. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. And from a podcast that I was listening to it, the, the actual cab was destroyed between trial number one and trial number two, which I kind of thought was, um, a little bit of taking a, a, a big risk, but then again, yeah. it could have been destroyed unbeknownst to the family who never right. even thought that his conviction would have gotten overturned. Right. But luckily the case was so strong that they didn't really need that evidence still from the original cab to make their case in his new trial. Um, so I'm sure being able to destroy that definitely provided some closure right. for the family to be able to get rid of that, that no one else was out there driving it that that memory wouldn't be floating around their town and whatnot. Um, And yeah, I mean, you you know, like, like you said, it's, we've just all done so many reckless things in our youth. I mean, I just remember being in my early twenties and getting into cabs by myself and, or even just walking around like downtown Portland 
and just so many situations that could have just ended so poorly for myself and people that I know. And I, and, and that's not to say that we should all be walking around constantly looking over our shoulder in a state of fear. But when I read about cases like this, it doesn't matter if you're 12 or you're 21 or you're 31 or whatever. I mean, given the right circumstances with the wrong person, it's a really scary world out there. Yeah. You know, I don't want to play the woman card, but especially for women and young children. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's hard to try and say like, oh, this kind of scenario is, is dangerous or this is dangerous a lot could be dangerous that you don't think is Mm -hmm. because why would you think this person who has a job with this company with this cab company be a danger to me right Right. why would you think that it's not like you're getting to a stranger's car I mean yes it's a stranger but you know it's a company it's you think it's a reputable business or you've logged on to your app and and you know hired a cab or whatever um and and that's not to say all of them are bad but it's just be aware of your surroundings um god i just uh social media and like talking to to people unknown like unknown people online mm-hmm. was and for especially at that time you know 2009 like from when we were growing up to like you know early 2000s mid 2000s it was a whole different it was a whole different time it was whole a whole different, different time, time. I mean, now you got catfishing and you're aware of catfishing and you're, um, you know, you're at least, you know, you know, that's out there. We didn't know that back then. No, we didn't know that back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we knew like, oh, maybe it's, you know, some person sitting in their basement pretending to be a girl at most right. kind of thing, but it was all it, very innocent, right? You think, yeah. like, oh, I'm just, I, I would never meet this person or I would never in person, you know, meet this person, but the right combination, you get a, a teenager who's, you know, in his teenager age mm-hmm. <laughs> and wants to meet a girl. Mm-hmm. It's just the right combination. Unfortunately for him, it was, and yeah, got him lured out. Hmm. Exactly. That's sad. So that is the case of Justin Bloxham. Um, I didn't know that this, when I first dove into this case, I didn't know that there was um, a conclusion that had happened so recently. And so it's kind of nice when we, when, you know, you stumble upon one of these and it's like, all right, we got some like official closure. Right within you know these last few years or in this case just in this recently in this last year yeah, yeah. so well that's that crazy I'm sad. glad he's definitely locked up at the very minimum mm-hmm. I guess we'll see what happens with the death row time because I'm sure like a lot of death row cases appeals will continue to come in right um so we'll see how long he prolongs it, his attorneys prolong it. Exactly. Yeah. I and mean, it could be exactly. years. It could be years and years down the line because. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we, we, we shall we'll see. see. Hopefully everything will just be carried out because um, um, he doesn't really deserve to hang out any longer than no, he's been allowed weird. to. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Do we have, I'm trying to think if we have any other news in true crime. I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. I keep trying to relook into um, all the Moscow murder stuff because it seems like a lot of that has been drug on for a really long time. I haven't heard anything new about um, Brian Um, Keppinger. uh, Kronberger. Kronberger. So the only, the newest thing that I've heard is that, um, and we had a really good conversation about this, Karen and I did, um, about the family petitioning to, or not, sorry, not the family, the, the homeowner, the actual homeowner that they were, the house they were renting wanted to bulldoze the house, mm-hmm. but the trial hasn't even happened. 
Yeah. And of course, that's where the murders happened. Right. And I understand, man, we, we were going back and forth on this one. So, you know, he wants to pull down the house. I understand it. Of course, no one's ever going to want to live in that house ever again. Right. Um, plus either fixing the, the cost of fixing the house itself back to like pre-murder state would be astronomical just because as far as I know, as far as I've learned is you know, blood was so much that it was seeping from one floor down to the next floor underneath it, like between the mm-hmm. walls. Um, and to look at it as a very matter of fact, um, you know, unemotional way, it's it's damage to the house. And this is how we were looking at it because we have, right. this, um, you know, background in insurance. Um, it's damage to the house and it would be just like a flood You'd have to cut out the wall. You'd have to, you know, re-insulate it, put it back in drywall, paint it, all these steps that go back into fixing a house. And we were wondering, like, it obviously would be too much to fix it, but also should they be destroying the house because it holds so much evidence. Mm-hmm. It holds so much evidence. And especially on a case like this, where this person tried to get away fully and try to hide the fact because he hasn't outright said I did the murders and here's why I did the murders. Right. Um, there could still be evidence there or totally. that would help the prosecution in one way or the other. So we were talking about like, well, instead of bulldozing it, the state or the prosecution should take on the expense however great it might be to take the house off the fucking foundation and move it to a location that's a secure location for them Mm, mm -hmm. i know that's astronomical but a house can't be moved off its foundation right um that's one option and then the other option is is like put aside the emotional you know four kids were murdered here part and for the homeowner um that maybe was his source of income you know, I don't know if sure. he's young, old, if he's whatever, if he's retired and this was, you know, his college town house that he just wanted to rent out to kids. And um, if it was just altruistic or if he it was actually his source of income, but if that's his source of income, he's losing out on all this income Yeah, from the house being a crime scene. Right. So I understand it from that point that either he wants to bulldoze it down, start over, start, you know, build a whole new apartment complex. Um and we were talking about whether insurance would be stepping in to help him for the loss of income that he's had this whole time. And the mm-hmm. answer is no. Mm. The answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but and would then, he would he get a payout? Do you believe to bulldoze and reconstruct from his insurance so company? Given the circumstances, he, he'd probably get the cost of the damage. Yeah. Uh, but then it's it all depends on his policy right Um, and this is so weird to talk about it like this but it all depends on his policy because most damage that's covered and i can't speak for everyone's policy is accidental Mm. and for all intents and purposes blood damaging the walls wasn't accidental sure it was an intentional act that produced that that made that happen right um so if they had broken a window to get in, if he had broken a door down to get in, that kind of stuff might be covered. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like the damage from the actual carrying out of the murders might not be covered. Mm-hmm. His house might be condemned as like a biohazard. It oh. might have been condemned as a biohazard and sure. they might have paid him out maybe a couple of months, but we're talking about a year or at least a year off from when it happened now. Yeah. So um, and then we also looked into, and I looked into this very heavily because I was like, there's no way this guy was just hung out to dry. Like there's no assistance for him whatsoever. And I looked into whether the county, the state, um, the, uh, you know, the, the federal government, if any of these types of government would assist him in recuperating some of those costs uh, mm-hmm. while his business was technically shut down. And the answer is no. Wow. Um, if they take your house as a crime scene, they don't care right so let's just say my house is a crime scene right now 
and they needed to block it off, but I couldn't live in it, I would still have to continue paying my mortgage. Yeah, exactly. Your mortgage doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. None of that stops. Your taxes don't stop. So this homeowner still has to continue paying these taxes, this mortgage for this place if he has one. Um, And he gets absolutely no assistance by no fault of his own. Sure. So, I don't know. It started a real long conversation for us about whether or not, not obviously morally, I don't think he should bulldoze the house because what if they need any evidence from there in the trial? Right. Um, But financially, putting aside the, the... the emotional part of it um i can see why he would want to oh for sure because he's paying a mortgage for something that he can't he's not getting any assistance on it he can't use it he can't generate you know any business out of it um so i don't know i just i feel like if they put him in a between a, a rock and a hard place and unfortunately he has to make the decision as of right now the house still stands um I would I I don't know if the state or the prosecution can stop him from mm-hmm. doing that. Um, I don't know what his rights would be as a homeowner if it comes to something like that. I feel like if nothing else, the prosecution would halt the plans of bulldozing by just tying him up in a legal battle. Yeah. No doubt. So there's that. <laughs> Glad yeah. you brought that up. <laughs> it's, just, it's been something that we we had a really long conversation about because we're like, well, what if this and like who helps them and like what he's paying and it's just like, well, yeah, we feel bad for that guy, but no, you can't really destroy the house. Like, you would be the hugest asshole if you do that. Mm-hmm. It's well, just hard. And I, I guess just to add this one last little bit, and I think where there is leverage is that you have somebody in custody who you really have a case against that could have done this. Now, if this was a cold case and we didn't have anybody in custody or anything like that, I could see the homeowner having a little bit more leverage to be like, come in and get whatever evidence you need for your case. You don't have anybody. This is what I need to do with this property. But because it's the murder scene, we have a trial that's going to happen. There is somebody in custody who there's, you know, a, a lot of good evidence stacked against that he is the one that did it. I think that um, the state or authorities or whatever have a lot more leverage to be like, no, that house isn't going anywhere until this trial is over. Right. Right. So I think that's what might end up happening is just they, they say, sorry you can't or we're gonna sue you for doing that or we're gonna try and pass something where yeah i think it's just gonna be a legal hold up totally yeah well another um to be determined yes we'll see how that plays out is another thing happening right now um that i cannot wrap my mind around and it's just smells terribly is um the three there was a, a football party where three Kansas Chief fans ended up dead in their buddy's backyard. What have you not heard this? I have not. So I, I can't remember the state. My phone's up on the camera, but um, they there was a group of guys that were over at a friend's house at a buddy's house for uh watching a Chiefs game, and mm-hmm. it was snowing. Um, and they were all over having beers, having fun, watching the game, etc. And then um the next day, three of the wives were like, Where are my husband? Where's my husband? <laughs> he didn't come home from your party. And I think at least at least one of their cars, maybe two of their cars, were still parked outside of this buddy's house. Mm-hmm. And he had been and it wasn't until like I want to say three or four days this is off of memory guys and I have the worst memory it wasn't like three or four days later that um they found that three of the guys had been like in the backyard either under snow or under covered under light snow they were all dead in the backyard either because of conditions um I don't know exactly what their cause of death was yeah but they were all in his backyard 
and his backyard that he had been letting his dogs out onto to go potty and whatnot. Mm-hmm. His buddy's cars were still in the front. So it's not like, oh, Joe went home. Joe's car is still in the front. Right. Um, so they were missing for a couple of days until they found all three of them. Three of them. Three, not one, not two, but three in the backyard. Um, I think I don't I think they were all frozen. I don't know if you want to Google it real quick. I can't because of my, my phone's tied mm-hmm. up, but um David Harrington 37 was found dead outside of a friend's home in the Kansas City Northland. Mm. Police say they found, quote, no obvious signs of foul play. Yeah. No one has been arrested or charged. A medical examiner is investigating to see what caused the men's death. And this is just a quick Google search, guys, yeah. from CNN. Um, TikTok is going wild with theories. I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around how do you have three friends missing and not go around and, and like, at least look for your friends? Um, totally. I, I don't know. It's just, a, it's a mind boggling story at the very least. So as soon as we know more information about this, we'll let you know, but yeah, um, it's a wild story that you have three friends go missing from your party and not find them till at least a couple of days later. Well, and then just really quickly in this, it says that the fiance to one of the guys broke into this man's house to go looking for her fiance yes that was one of the weird parts that people i think as soon as the next day were coming over knocking on his door and saying hey you know knocking on his door like hey i'm looking for my husband looking for my boyfriend whatever like cop knocking on his door and he still wouldn't come to the door so it's like why wouldn't you answer the door especially if it's your buddy's wife or girlfriend looking for your buddy exactly if you have nothing to hide what happened exactly i don't know it's just weird that's weird it's just weird all right well yeah we will um kind of see how that unravels that's wild all right well we are gonna wrap up this episode thank you guys so much for tuning in um as always you know our lives are are crazy and fun and full of family and friends and events and all of that so we will still be getting some episodes out to you guys really soon if we take a week off here and there don't be too surprised but we'll try to keep you updated on instagram and stuff like that when there might be a little gap in cases but nonetheless um don't be a stranger and we will catch you on the next episode okay bye. bye bye